Let's turn to God's word as we get back into Joseph. And we are reading tonight from Genesis 47 and starting our reading at verse 11. This is the word of the living God. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their families. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought money to Pharaoh's house. And when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for, thy, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses, and for the flocks, and for the cattle of the herds, and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. And when that year was ended, they came unto him the second time and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also has our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our, and our lands. Wherefore shall we die be, before thine eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they would not, uh, they sold not their land. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day um, and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, there is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own for the seed of the field and for your food and for them of your household and for food for your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in, this, in the sight of my Lord and he will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day and Pharaoh, that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except for the land of the priests only which became not pharaohs. And amen. God will bless to us the reading of his word, no doubt. Keep your Bible handy, please, so you can refer to it. The story is told of a young pastor who uh, was in his first church, and he was uh, nervous and anxious. So one Sunday morning, he got up and he announced his message 
but, but he got the message badly wrong. He said he was going to speak on how the Lord fed five men with 5,000 loaves of bread and 2,000 fish. And uh, one pensioner was heard to say, that's no miracle, I could do that myself. And the young pastor kept on going. But the next Sunday he came to the same text and he got it right this time. And he said, the Lord, we're going to speak on how the Lord fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And he paused and leaned over the platform and said, could you do that too, Mr. Smith? And Mr. Smith says, of course I could. And the pastor said, how could you do it? He says, well, with all the food we had left over from last week. <laughs> so, but we had no food left over from last week. Uh, we have been looking through this uh, study of Joseph. We have looked at the childhood, we looked at the cruelty, looked at the confinement, the communication, the children, the confrontation. And we finished that last time uh, in our study. Tonight we come to the seventh section and we're looking at Joseph's consummation. This passage that we've read, Genesis 47 from verse 11 through to verse 26. We have been tracing the hand of God in Joseph's life through hard times and happy times through both affliction and affluence, in trouble and triumph, Joseph became a spiritual giant that no matter whether he was in the valley or the mountaintop, his faith was strong and it didn't seem to budge. Whether he was in the prison or the palace, Joseph trusted in God. I think it was Warren Wearsby I first heard saying the quote. I think originally it was attributed to Martin Luther. But it goes, if you are going to live by faith, then expect your faith to be tested. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. There is something fundamentally wrong when a person's faith collapses with the first breeze of adversity. And you know the parable in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. There is the, the packed soil, the stony soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. And you have that stony soil and, and the seed falls and, and there's not sufficient soil and the plant sprouts and it, and it seems to be growing. But as soon as the sun comes out, the plant is scorched. And the word of God tells us it's like the person who receives the word with joy, but has no root. It lasts a short while. It seems to be genuine. It seems to be the real thing. But once tribulation and persecution comes, once the trouble arrives, they abandon their faith. Now that's important because I meet lots of people who do not profess to be Christians, but they'll say, well, I tried it once. I remember at a Sunday school. I remember at a mission. I re and I, I asked the Lord into my heart, but it only lasted a day. It only lasted a week. And it didn't seem to... This is the problem. This is the, the problem of the, of the rocky, stony soil. And the seed just seems to be starting and it seems to be getting a, starting to grow, but... But it never gets down deep. It never grips their heart. It never grips their soul and their mind. And it comes to nothing. 
Isn't it a good job the Lord knows them that are his? I wouldn't like the job of trying to assess who is genuinely his children and who's not. But I do know there is a problem whenever they seem to be enthusiastic for a little while and then fade away. The parable of the soils has a lot to teach us, but not Joseph. Joseph travailed and thrived in hardship. His faith grew with persecution. Trouble seemed to strengthen his trust as he held on to God all the tighter. And in this last section, the consummation, we will see Joseph being a blessing. A blessing to his father, a blessing to his family, indeed a blessing to all the land of Egypt. In fact, I would argue, I have no evidence for it, but I believe that Joseph was one of the greatest benefactors that Egypt ever had. In a single stroke, he broke the power of local landlords and chieftains in Egypt and centralized power in one master, one lord, and made the throne of Egypt supreme. And in the same way, in a coming day, the Lord will set up his kingdom on this world directly under the power, control, authority of God in a true theocracy. And Jesus shall reign where'er the Son. God as its head, Christ as its administrator, and we shall reign with him. What can we find in the text? Notice, first of all, Joseph's generosity. Look at verses 11 and 12. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren, and all his father's household with bread, according to their families. Joseph's generosity. We could divide it up, couldn't we? We could think of the position. He gave them this fertile land in a position of privilege. They had preferential treatment because of their link and association with Joseph. And so they were a special people in Egypt, in the best of land, and they had uh, that wonderful position. Not only position, we could think of the possessions. The command of Pharaoh was to place them in the very best, most fertile land. Notice that he gave them title and ownership of it. Did you notice that? It says that they, he gave them possession of that land. Nourish his father. Wonderful. They gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. They had the title deeds. And so it was theirs by right. No one could chase them off it. So the possessions. And then the portion. Joseph met their needs and ensured that the families and the households were well provided for. There's a wee phrase in verse number 13 that uh, jumped out at me. It says, according to their families. In the Hebrew, it has a lovely turn of phrase. It actually literally means according to their little ones. 
according to their little ones. And Joseph uh, did not overlook the little ones, and, and he measured out according to the size of the families, measuring according to the little ones. You know, in Europe today, we're living in a post-Christian era. Christian values and standards have been superseded by materialism and secularism to the point where most children now across Europe do not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Many children find themselves in a society that is hostile to them. And in many cases, they're left to their own devices, put in front of a computer screen, put in front of a television, and the days of parents spending time with their children seems to be a rarity. They're expected to grow up fast, and uh, they have a steep learning curve. And some of them have no childhood at all, no innocence at all. Uh, But many of them feel lost and vulnerable and frightened. Across the world, there are child brides marrying men maybe four times their age. Some of them dying, giving birth to children because they're only children themselves. And so we, they, we need to be thinking of the children. Of course, there is a percentage of children now who are innocent victims of divorce, abuse, neglect, live out their lives in front of maybe a computer screen. Don't forget about the children. Pray for our Sunday school. Pray for our Good News Club, our little sunbeams, uh, our creche, children's church, and all the things that uh, we normally have here at church. Joseph didn't forget about the children, but rather he gave out their portion in accordance to the little ones. Not only Joseph's generosity, notice also Joseph's guidance. We see this, how everything was done decently and in order. He was meticulous in, in his um, management of the situation of the famine in Egypt. There was no, for Joseph, no offshore accounts. There was no secret money reserve. There was no illicit practices. No scandal, no double dealing, no fraud. People could give the money to Joseph knowing it would be used for that which it was allocated to. All his dealings were marked with absolute integrity and transparency. The famine had now reached its height, not only in Egypt, but also in Canaan and the surrounding countries. It was very obvious that there was no hope apart from Joseph. There was no hope in this world. The only thing they could do was come to Joseph. And drastic conditions call for a drastic cure. Notice the, the procedure. Notice the, the guidance, the, the methodology, if you will. First of all, he demanded their finances, verses 13 and 14. When there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so at the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money onto Pharaoh's house, and so on. People could no longer put their trust in finance. Maybe that's something we need to learn today. People are worried about 
uh, the, how the, the markets are being affected by COVID, by Brexit and all the rest. Uh, and, and they're fearful. And says, Joseph, don't be trusting in your money. In today's church, we have a, a philosophy, I could call it, which is called uh, um, prosperity theology. Promoted a lot in America. And the logic of it is quite simple. It goes something like this. Because God owns everything, and we are his children, then he wants us to have the very best in life. If your dad owns everything, if he is far above all, if he's on the throne, then as, as children of the royal family of heaven, then we deserve all that we get. And so, elaborate homes and Expensive luxury cars and an extravagant wardrobe are the order of the day for Christians and should be expected, they say. You name it and claim it. How foreign to the life of our Savior that he experienced while on earth. He had very little of this world's goods and yet was part of the Holy Trinity. Genesis 47, 13 and 14, Joseph is teaching us that our hope and our confidence must not be in our wealth. It must not be in our pension or in our investments, but rather we give our wealth to the Lord and then we become faithful stewards to him in what he allows us to have. And as we are faithful stewards, then he will meet our need. John MacArthur from California pastor of Grace Community Church, wrote a book some years ago, Whose Money Is It Anyway? And in the introduction, he, puts, he says this, the credibility of our Christianity is at stake in the handling of our funds. The money in our purse, in our bank accounts, in our pension is not ours, but we are but, we are but stewards of it, and God expects faithful accountability. In Genesis 47, all is reduced to the same level. Everybody has nothing. They had no money to trust in for security. They only had to look to the man that was on the throne. They had to look to Joseph and depend on him. And that's still an important lesson for us today. And I believe that in a future day during that millennial reign of Christ, the monetary system will be perfect. The monetary system will be equitable and obviously fair. So much so that the Marxist dream will actually come true in the coming day. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now, Karl Marx tried to promote that in his day, the communist system. It didn't work. But in a coming day, it will work perfectly. To, from those who have ability according to their wealth and to each according to their need, there will be a, an outworking of Karl Marx, the German socialist philosopher, 
And in the millennium, the world's wealth will be dispensed by the throne for the blessing and the benefit of all and not the few. And for the first time since the Garden of Eden, justice and power are united. Whatever is just will be powerful. And whatever is powerful will be just. And there will be a perfect equilibrium in financial matters. But then he goes further. Not only does he demand the finance, but then he demands the flocks. Look at verses 15 to 17. And when money failed in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle. And I will give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph. The farm animals were next to be nationalized. The herds and the flocks came under that central control. So the vizier of Egypt now had control of the finances and control of the flocks, their possessions. We live in a society where our standing and our success, even maybe our acceptance among our peers, is linked to our possessions. What car is in the drive and what we're able to do with our wealth. And we are inclined to accumulate things rather than accumulating values and friends and maturity. The question is, are our possessions, our flocks, Controlled by the throne. And as I teach this passage tonight, I'm asking the same question. Is God in control of my finances? Is God in control of my possessions? But it goes even further. Because they come again. And the, and the next thing is he takes the farms. Look at verse 18. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Therefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land be not desolate. Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, and the land became Pharaoh's. So he gets the farms. Joseph bought all the land of Egypt. In accountancy terms, he bought all the fixed assets uh, as well as the liquid assets that are easily dispersed. They were all under the control of Joseph. We can see what's happening, can't we? We can see that Joseph is using the crisis of the famine to bring the people closer to him, more dependent on him. To the point where he controls their destiny. He controls the food. He controls their, the blessing of their lives. He's in control of it all. And the Egyptians are brought to an end of themselves. To the point where total and unquestioning trust had to be placed on Joseph. And that's exactly 
the same reasons for the famines in our lives. Maybe you're tuning in tonight and you're going through a famine time. And even though there's food in the cupboard, you feel parched and empty inside. Your soul is shriveled. This is what's going on. God is touching your life so that you will learn that you must depend on him. The reason for the illness, for the worry, for the crisis is to bring us closer to our heavenly Joseph where we are at our wit's end and we say, if I have Jesus, Jesus only, then my sky will have a gem. To bring us close to our heavenly Joseph to the point where our total and unquestioning trust is in Christ alone. Joseph goes even further. We've seen the finance, we've seen the flocks, we've seen the land, the farms, but then he puts his finger on the families. Look at verse 21. And as for the people, he removed them to, the, to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Joseph exercised the right to redistribute the population in order that the workforce could be utilized for the good and the benefit of all. Isn't that amazing? So depending on what your skills were, depending on what you could do, Joseph had you allocated an area, sent you to a place where that ability was needed. And so he had them spread right over the land where they were best utilized. You know, we used to sing a chorus, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be, all of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender them into his care, for it's only in his will that I am free, and so on. It's easy to sing, isn't it? Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. That principle is difficult, but it's not new. That is what Joseph is teaching the people in Egypt 3,700 years ago. And they were learning that the best success, the best way to live is totally dependent on the man on the throne. Because your finance can't be depended on in your flocks and your farms and even your families. And that he reigns supreme. And here it is happening on the continent of Africa 3,700 years ago. Notice it is a gradual unfolding surrender. First the finances, then the flocks, then the farms, then the families. The idea is this. As you learn to trust him, as you discover his way is best, as you appreciate that he has your very very best interests at heart, well, then you can let go of a little bit more. You surrender a little bit more. And I have found in my life, maybe you're the same, that, that it's an ongoing, constant process. And when I surrender a little bit of my life, God has a way of putting his finger in another part. And then I give that, and then he puts his finger in another part. And down through my Christian experience, there's always another wee bit that he wants. I remember going to do meetings with a, 
a choir over in, in Scotland. And going into the house, I've told this story many times over the years, but going into a house, they welcomed us, glad to see us. Two of us were staying in that particular home, showed us to our bedroom, make yourself at home. But whenever I tried to put my suit up, the cupboards were cram-packed. And the wardrobe, you couldn't get anything more in. And so I just had to live out of the case. There's no room. And in my life, there's been times it's been so cluttered and there's been so many cupboards and boxes in my roof space and in my life. God is a way of just putting his finger, Lawrence, I want that box. No, no, not that box. Yes, I want that box. And I don't get any peace until I say, Lord, that's yours. That's yours. And then he says, I want that box. <laughs> no, not that box. Yeah, I want that box. And I have no peace until I say, Lord, it's yours. And all through my Christian experience, he just puts his finger in another wee box and says, Lawrence, what about that box? And we find here in Genesis 47, the unrolling the unfolding, the gradual surrender of a people to the heavenly Joseph. It's not easy. You see, we hold back because we don't want to lose control. We hold back because we don't want to be considered extreme or odd or eccentric. We hold back because we don't want to be labeled strange. We hold back because we think we can do it better. Because we love our sin and we love this fallen world. And the Lord longs that we would trust him enough to say, Lord, happily and confidently I surrender to you my finances, my flocks, my farms, my family. It's yours. All that I have. I never hope to be. It's yours. Says someone, Pastor, was there anybody holding back and reluctant in Egypt? Oh, aye, there was. There was. Look at verse 22. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they sold not their lands. Joseph's power and control was vast, but he never got hold or control of the wealth of the Egyptian priests. These religious authorities, these pagan uh, devotees of, of pagan gods, they would not give up control. And so often in our lives, there is those areas that never come under the control of our heavenly Joseph. These pagan priests never came under the control of Joseph. They expected people to give their wealth, but they would not give theirs. 
They expected one standard for their people, but they wouldn't do it themselves. The priests expected the people to give their flocks and their farms and their family and their finance, but but we're not doing it. And all of a sudden, the spotlight turns on me. On the pulpit. And those who claim to serve, is it possible that we point the finger and expect everybody that would normally be in the pews to do these things, but, but we don't do it? And we say, well, it doesn't apply to me. We must not preach to others what we have no intention of applying to our own lives. The Scripture must be applied first in the pulpit and then from the pulpit to the pew. Notice something else. We have looked at Joseph's generosity, verses 11 and 12. We have seen Joseph's guidance as he puts his finger in these different areas. But then we come to Joseph's graciousness. Verse 23. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have brought you this day and your, bought you this day in your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the, in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own for seed of the f- field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. Joseph lays down the blueprint, the building blocks for this new age in Egypt's history. It was marked by simplicity, power centralized at the throne. It wasn't intended as a means of opposition, but rather a means of blessing. And during those seven years of plenty, Joseph had been empowered by Pharaoh to tax the landowners at one-fifth, at 20% which was set aside for the years of need. You find that in Genesis 41, 34. And so then in chapter 47, Joseph is not imposing a new tax. No, rather he's making the previous emergency tax laws, he's making them permanent. He's just putting in statute what they've already been doing over the time of plenty. Pastor, you might say, is imposing tax regimes a sign of graciousness? <laughs> doesn't seem very gracious to me. Well, it is if the funds that are used, are, if the funds that are raised are used to bless and benefit the population. Joseph could have taken the tax and it evaporated in bureaucracy and red tape. He could have taken the tax and opened a personal offshore account in a tax haven. He was was under no obligation to bless anybody. But Joseph showed his graciousness by using the tax to bless the population. So it was marked by simplicity. Uh, 20%, a fifth, will go to the, the throne and the rest will be yours to seed, to feed, and to bless the people. Not only marked by simplicity, it was marked by sincerity. Verse 25. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. 
Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. Our text reveals that the people in Egypt are not resentful. Isn't that interesting? They've lost their finances, control of their finances. That's gone to the throne. Uh, they've, they've lost their flocks. They've lost the farms. They've even lost their families. And yet they come and they say, thank you. The people are not resentful. They're not embittered. They're not begrudging. They're not even broken or downtrodden. No, they're a grateful, happy people. They said, thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord. You see, they're dealing with someone who, who was honorable and was gracious and loving and with a, a heart for the people. Glad to serve such a master as Joseph. Their future was safe. Their future was assured. Their happiness was guaranteed. Maybe reports were coming back from other countries round about of so many deaths and so many uh, in poverty and, and no food. And the story, and, and yet that food in Egypt. My, we have Joseph here. And with his skill and knowledge, his ability, he has provided for us. They were glad to serve. No wonder verse 27 speaks of the contentment of Joseph's family. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshan, and they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. It's a sign of a happy family, isn't it? They had possessions therein, they grew and multiplied, they dwelt there exceedingly. Their material blessing through Joseph and their growth numerically as a family. And eventually, of course, it would turn into a nation. I look at my own life and I ask the question, is it marked by such contentment? Is my life blessed because I'm in the place of God's appointment? Am I enjoying the truth of what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 1, where we find the Lord has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Am I basking in that place of God's appointment for me? Christ has met our need. Not in proportion, are not into the extent of our need, but according to the measure and the abundance of the extent of God's amazing grace. Why, he, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Our God delights, just like Joseph. He, 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 he won't surrender, but once surrendered, he makes sure that, that you have all that you need and, and far more besides. He is no man's debtor. Eventually, in Egypt, the seven years of treacherous famine ended. Prosperity returned. And Egypt 
blossomed. But for the Hebrew community in the land of Goshen, up in the northeast of Egypt, in that delta valley there, where things were so good, you know, as they sat down at night, they were able to see past the winding Nile and the towering pyramids. They were able to look past the silent, staring finxes of the pyramids. They were able to look past the pillars of the twisted serpents that the people worshipped. And as they met together, you know what their conversation was? They talked about the landscape of Hebron. Back to the Jordan River. Back to the land of Judah. Back to the black tents there in the wilderness. Why? What was it? Well, you see, there was something in them that wanted to go home. Sir Henry Bishop, I think, writing away back in 1914, he put it like this. Mid pleasures and palaces through which we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. No place like home. And here was this family, family of Jacob. And there they are in the land of Goshen, so nice, so productive. But part of them wanted to be home. Next time, we'll finish our study in Joseph and we'll see the plans to get them back home again.